we are recording a week after uh, the holiday Memorial Day in the States, and we're also a few weeks after May 9th, which is Victory Day in Russia, the day that commemorates the end of World War II and uh, the Soviet victory over the fascists. And at the time, the U.S. and Russia were allies in that war, and there are a lot of people in the U.S. and in Russia who remember that war. Uh, Grant and I, our grandparents, both fought in World War II, and a lot of people can remember all of the sacrifices, the rationing, the the tragedy, the many people who never made it back home, people waiting for their loved ones. And uh, so if you are somebody who remembers that tragedy and remembers how much sacrifice was made in the States, I want you to imagine that and now multiply it by a thousand. And that should give you a little idea of what Russia went through during World War II, also known as the Great Patriotic War. In 2003, we moved to Russia together, and it changed us in a permanent way. We learned to survive the snow, to drink vodka, and to beat ourselves in the bathhouse. We discovered a land of poets and philosophers, of ancient mysteries and modern transformations. It was an entirely different world. Ever since we left, we've wanted to share this great country with others. Consider this podcast our love letter to Russia. I'm David. And I'm Grant. Welcome to Season 2 of To Russia With Love. Yeah, that's right. A lot of people felt a lot of pain during that time. But um, I think the consensus around the world is Russia felt the brunt right. of the pain during World War II. It was a it was a big sacrifice that they did to really, like he, how you said, to defeat the fascists, Dave, to really stop the the fascists in Germany, Nazi Germany, in taking over the world. If it wasn't for them, I don't know if I don't know if we would be the same here in the United States as we are right now. Yeah, the the whole map of the world would have looked totally different if uh, if the Soviet yeah. Union had not defeated fascism. Yeah. But you're right. I had a grandfather who fought in World War II. Uh, his name is Walter Morgan. And um, he fought in Africa and Italy and Germany. If you remember, Dave, he was the grandfather who passed away when we were together oh, that's in Russia. Right. Yeah, I was I was with you when you got the phone call. Yeah. you got. I, th- I think you got a text message on our cell phone saying, hey, can you call us back in California? Yeah. We were at Pastor Piotr's house at the time, and so you called and you got the news. I remember that. Yeah, that was a that was a hard a hard moment, and that was the reason why I went back to the states. Was he passed away, and I went back for the memorial service, and um, just realized it was probably better for me to spend the next few months in in the United States rather than going back to Russia. But that was my grandfather who served in the war. You Did you have one or both of your grandfathers? Yeah. No, my, my maternal grandfather, he was too young to serve. Uh, so it was my dad's mm-hmm. dad who served. And it was interesting. He, he didn't always like to talk about it. And that generation, you know, we call it the greatest generation in the States. That's how we remember that yeah. generation right before the baby boomers. I mean, this was before there was a lot of recognition of PTSD, of of actually yeah, appreciating yeah. how traumatizing that experience is, or even thinking that you can do something to to deal with that trauma. I mean, this is back back in that generation. the The mindset was you drink it off, you forget about it. Uh, I read a quote from a 
a veteran in England who had been in World War II. And I guess his quote kind of defined the war memories for England at the time. He said, let us think of these things always, but speak of, speak of them never. Yeah. And that was the culture to, you know, it was not a culture of getting, of talking things out, of looking for help or therapy or counseling. It was just suck it up and, and let's not talk about it. And so my grandpa, I know that he was in the war a lot. To this day, a lot, it's kind of a mystery, a lot of what he was doing, where he was. Uh, one day I visited him and, and stayed up all night chatting with him, and it was not long before he passed, and I actually heard some stories from him for the first time. He was uh, part of the raid of a one-town Erfurt in Germany, and they raided a Nazi brewery that brewed all the really good beer that the Nazi <laughs> officers would drink that the normal people didn't get to drink. Yeah. So he had, and he gave me an ashtray from that brewery, actually. Wow. So I have this Erfurt uh, brewery uh, ashtray. And all the allies were having fun drinking this really good craft beer. Yeah. And, but I know he marched on Berlin when, when the allies took it over, too. He was there for that moment. Wow. Yeah, my grandfather didn't speak much about it either. As a kid growing up in the family, sometimes we would ask about that time period. But he, he never really said anything. We learned most of it after he passed away. And we were able to see letters that he sent to his mom and medals that he received that we had no idea he he got but you know what we're not here to talk about our grandfathers <laughs> and um and honest right. and honestly we're not really here to give all the facts about world war ii most of you our listeners have, have probably studied world war ii in history classes you know there's a lot of great books out there there's great podcasts that you can find, even getting on Wikipedia to look up some of the facts. That's not really what we're about to do today. We are going to give some facts, uh, some background, but we really want to talk a little bit more about the the personal aspect of the Great War in Russia and um, and kind of what it meant to to the people who survived and the generations that followed. It was the event that marked Russia's history in the 20th century. And even generations later, we, we saw so much of it being there. This, this was imprinted on the consciousness of a whole nation. And that's the side we want to look at today. That's right. So we're going to be looking, we're going to, we'll be talking about our personal anecdotes, but uh, we're going to be also looking at some, some songs from the World, from World War II period in Russia, mm -hmm. the Great Patriotic War. And so we'll, we'll go through a few songs. We're going to play them. We're going to talk about the lyrics. And at the end, we're going to have a film review, which uh, you and I just watched this heart-wrenching Soviet film. Yeah. Oh, my God. If anybody watches this movie and doesn't cry their eyes out, you, you have no soul. <laughs> it's a, it, it really messed me up. It really got to me. Uh, a movie called Cranes Are Flying. Litsia uh, Giravli is the name of the movie. So we'll be we'll do a review of that movie at the end. Yeah. So Dave, uh, why don't you why don't we just start off by getting some of those facts out of the way? Uh, you know a little bit about that. Um the facts about the Russia's sacrifice, what the the country and the people of Russia had to give to to defeat fascism, to defeat that type of evil in the 40s. Well, I think the the main thing that that we need to remember is Russia was fighting for its survival as a, a nation, as a people. It wasn't just ideology. It wasn't just fighting for territory in some distant continent. I mean, Hitler was invading Russia. He wanted to turn Moscow into a big lake. Yeah. I mean, and he believed that Slavic people were inferior to quote-unquote Aryan people, and he wanted to er erase Russia from the map. And so Russians were, they were fighting for, for the survival of their homeland, 
it was about to be destroyed if they didn't fight tooth and nail. Yeah. And I mean, I say all that to to put it in into perspective for obviously people like our grandparents' generation. Yeah, they sacrificed a lot. But putting it into perspective, I mean, during the entire World War II, the U.S. suffered only one attack on its territory, Pearl Harbor. And apart from that, the only two other attacks on U.S. territory that have happened in history since the War of 1812 were that and 9-11. Yeah. That's it. You're not talking about having troops amassed on your borders, moving in, taking over towns. Uh, you know, it was a much more distant thing for a lot of people in the States. Yeah. And I mean, in other countries like like Britain, of course, Britain was in the heart of it. Britain was being firebombed, uh, bombed by, by the Nazis. But in Russia, you've got 20 million people were killed defending Russia. Mm. And just in the Battle of Stalingrad, uh, there's a million soldiers died and another million civilians died, a lot of them from starvation. And uh, so this is just a fight for survival, just fighting to the last man and woman. Well, that's a that's a really good point. We entered the war halfway through. I, I think we did everything we could to not get involved in another world war over in Europe after World War One. But eventually we did. We realized, hey, this is a threat that is going to be a global threat sooner than later. So we sent troops over. But that's just it. We sent troops over. A country like Russia wasn't just sending troops to the front. They were the front. And it was right. men, women, and children who were fighting for their lives. I mean, there's there's a lot of stories out there of of battles where anybody who could hold a gun would pick one up and go out and and do what they could to stop the fascists from marching on their cities. Yeah, tons of of volunteers, people who were not conscripted, they volunteered for the army because they they knew what was at stake. Yeah. Yeah, that, and again, there's there's plenty of great books and documentaries out there that'll go into the specifics, but the conditions of these frontovki, these uh, soldiers on the front, just unbelievable. Like having next to no possessions, going out, you know, sleeping on the ground in the winter and the snow, uh, living on just this sparse diet of of black rye bread and of you know canned meats and fish. Uh, she and Kasha, you know, you remember the Kasha Mama Nadia made us. Yeah, yeah, and the and the she, we had quite a bit of she, she too. That's basically cabbage soup. Yeah, so that was their whole diet for a lot of the war. Oh. if even that, if they were lucky enough to get those rations, there was this phrase in the Red Army. They said she Kasha pisha nasha, <laughs> like she and Kasha is our sustenance. That's uh-huh. our <laughs> that's our food. Something interesting to me. Little side note. Uh, is this when when Stalin needed to drum up support to to defend Russia? He uh, he knew a lot of people still had Christian beliefs. I feel like this was World War Two, uh, the Great Patriotic War. Was I feel like it was the end of of the the hardcore Marxist dream of totally atheizing uh, Russia? Hmm. Like he kind of that was his first capitulation to just admitting that millions of people still had Christian faith, and so he he changed the official policy to the Church. Wow. And he even he invited some of the Orthodox Metropolitans into the Kremlin. Uh, he talked about reestablishing the Moscow uh, Patriarchate, which that had been suspended since 1925. And so that's the first steps of of re-legalizing the church again and recognizing like, hey, if we want people to get behind us, the fact is people are religious and we have to just be okay with that. Yeah. We can't try to indoctrinate everybody into this state atheism if we want the support of people. Yeah. So we've got a, a the first song we're going to look at here. Uh, we're going to play it right now. This is one of the 
one of the big government propaganda songs drumming up support for for the war. Um, it's called Svishenaya Vaina, like which means holy war. <laughs> yeah, even the even the language of this song, it's very almost religious language talking about this holy duty for people to go into the war. So let's listen to a little of this song and then we'll talk about some of the verses in it. Arise, vast country, arise for a fight to the death against the dark fascist force, against the cursed horde. Let noble wrath boil over like a wave. This is the people's war, a sacred war. We shall repulse the oppressors of all ardent ideas, the rapists and the plunderers, the torturers of people. The black wings shall not dare fly over the motherland. On her spacious fields, the enemy shall not dare tread. We shall drive a bullet into the forehead of the rotten fascist filth. For the scum of humanity, we shall build a solid coffin. They're not joking around. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. Man, yeah, there's so much poetic language in, in like, even these old, they're the, you know, it's government propaganda, but it's so poetic, too. Yeah. Like, that's, I feel like that's part of Russia. Even when you're making government propaganda, it's not going to be just dry, boring stuff. You're still using this beautiful, florid language. Yeah. Describing something as horrific as war. Wow. That song, that's one of my pump-up songs, when I need to go get a good pump on at the gym. <laughs> I'll listen to that one or the Lenin Takoy Maladoy song. It just gets me so amped. It's definitely got that call to action kind of a feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah, and of course, very positive, very like it's all about victory and glory. There's some of those verses remind me of of a part in the movie that we're going to review later on, the letter that the main character writes. There's a phrase in there he says, I'm paraphrasing, but he he says, you know, we can't we can't just go on living like we used to live and being happy and pretending that tragedy doesn't exist. Yeah. We can't continue living the way we used to live when death is stalking our nation. Yeah. He describes it in this personified death is, you know, wandering and stalking through our homeland. So, yeah. So we can't just ignore that. It definitely didn't leave anybody out as a response to what was going on. Right. Yeah. So toward the end of the war, things got really gnarly. Just to give an idea I mean, millions of people were starving, especially around Stalingrad. One of the main crimes committed at the time was stealing ration cards because people were just starving. Yeah. And so people were getting shot for stealing a loaf of bread. And there are records of even serious crimes like murder and cannibalism. By the end of the siege of Stalingrad, about 1,500 people had been arrested officially for cannibalism. What a desperate time. 
Yeah, and by the end of it, like the the cost of this whole war was was absolutely catastrophic. The Soviet Union's economy shrank by 20% between 1941 and 45. It didn't get back to its pre-war levels till the, the 60s. This is not just official Russian government statistics. This is from British historians, American historians. There's a British historian, Clive Ponting. His estimate is that the war damages there equal to 25 years of the Soviets' gross national product. Wow. And so 40, 40% of housing destroyed... 2.5 million residences in the German-occupied territories. More than a million of those were destroyed. Uh, the financial burden equivalent to $192 billion. So just this absolute devastation and, and tragedy and horror that people went through and that people still remember. Wow. So that, that leads us into the second song, which is, I think it really contrasts with... The first song, which, you know, the first government propaganda song, which is all get you pumped up and glory and victory. And this second song is called Tionnaya Noche, The Dark Night. And so let's take a listen to it. It's a very different kind of song. Tionnaya Noche, только пули свистят по степи, только ветер. Будит в проводах Тускло звезды мерцают О -о -о, В темную ночь Ты Dark night, only bullets are whistling in the steep Only the wind is wailing through the telephone wires Stars are faintly flickering In the dark night, my love, I know you are not sleeping and near a child's crib, you secretly wipe away a tear. How I love the depths of your gentle eyes. How I long to press my lips to them. This dark night separates us, my love, and the dark, troubled step has come to lie between us. I have faith in you, my sweetheart. That faith has shielded me from bullets in this dark night. I am glad, I am calm in deadly battle. I know you will meet me with love, no matter what happens. Death is not terrible. We've met it more than once on the step. And here it looms over me once again. You await my return, sitting sleepless near a cradle. And so I know that nothing will happen to me. Wow. This song was uh, in a, a different film. We're not going to be talking about this film so much, but this was in a, a film as well, and there was a soldier playing this on the guitar in a, looks like in a foxhole. Yeah, that scene, it's, that's a, a tearjerker scene too. The, the heart with which the soldier sings and plays it, you really believe that, he's, that you're watching somebody in the foxhole. Yeah remembering his his wife and his child and and just hoping to god that he can he can get back alive to see them again. What was the name of that film? Oh, that was uh, in English Two Soldiers, Dva Baitsa, Two Soldiers. Ah. The actor was Mark Birnes. Uh he was a Russian Jewish actor. Did a lot very prolific. Did a lot of work with involving actually did a lot of humorous work with the the Jewish sense of humor, uh you know, talking a lot about Jewish culture from Odessa. Uh but in this film it's very serious. Uh, he didn't write the song. He plays it, but it was written by Nikita Bogoslovsky. And I, I read that during 
the Great Patriotic War, it was actually controversial. This song, a lot of government officials didn't like it because it wasn't like that first song we heard. It was not upbeat. It was not about victory and glory. It's a it's a very grounded human voice of of the horrors of war. Yeah. This guy is sitting there on the battlefield hearing the, the bullets whizzing past him. I mean, it's almost sung like a prayer, just like praying to, to God or to his wife or fate or anything. Just let me get back home. Yeah. And he's not he's not talking about glory. He's not talking about politics or causes. He just he just wants to be alive. He just wants to get back home. Yeah, there's definitely a difference between this one and the last one we played. The recording that we that we played for this one, The Dark Knight, uh, we, we actually put together. And as we were playing it, it just has a more melancholy feel. It definitely feels more like it was sung by a man in the trenches in the mud, uh, just trying to get through and get by so he could get back to his wife and child, where the other one that we listened to was, was more a call to arms, a call to action, probably from the folks up in Moscow, safe, but knowing this eminent threat and trying to inspire people to get out there. This song isn't that inspiring. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's, it's beautiful. It's heart-wrenching. But uh, yeah, it's very human. And it's that, you know, that dark night of the soul kind of ex- experience when you're staring death in the face and you just want to get out alive. Yeah. We met a lot of people who were affected by the Great War, not an incredible amount of veterans, but we did meet veterans. And one of the things that was interesting to me was many of these men would wear their awards on their shirts nonstop. Yeah. You would see men walking around town with canes kind of hunched over with age and, and probably with injury. But they would have these um, awards on their on their breast of all the different things that they did during the Great War. There was a there was an honor to fighting in the Great War and a pride in being a part of that generation that stopped fascism and and saved the rest of their country and the rest of the world. Yeah, the uh, I remember seeing constantly uh, this acronym written everywhere. Um, I mean, hotels, restaurants. Like anywhere offering a service, uh-huh. there it was always some announcement posted of special rates for Vov veterans. Yeah, and it was spelled Vov. Uh, it looks like the name Bob in English. It looks like B O B. I always wondered who you know who's <laughs> who's Bob and why is he getting this this discount? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. Yeah, yeah, everybody loves Bob. Yeah, yeah, it was like everywhere. You'd always see that acronym. Uh huh. And that brings us to a fun little language tidbit here about the Russian language and acronyms. So you have a lot of acronyms in Russian, and Vov is just one of them. And the reason for that, um, in my opinion, it's very simple. Uh, now, George Orwell had a different theory about why the Soviets used so many acronyms. When he wrote 1984, which, of course, is about totalitarian governments, and it was written during the, the 50s, during the Stalinist years, Orwell's theory was that the Russians did it on purpose to try to alter the way people thought. And he thought that this hmm. was a deliberate totalitarian tendency of abbreviating a name. There's, I've got a quote here from his essay about Newspeak, which is the, you know, the new English uh, used in his novel yeah. in this uh, dystopian future. 
So in that essay, he says, it was perceived that in thus abbreviating a name, one narrowed and subtly altered its meaning by cutting out most of the associations that otherwise would cling to it. Huh. His idea is that it was this deliberate propaganda thing. I have a, a much simpler theory. It's just that, dude, so many Russian words are so freaking long. <laughs> <laughs> like you can't, you just can't say it all the time. Yeah. Nobody's got the energy. Like the VOV, that VOV acronym, it's... It's a shortening for Vilikaya Atsiechistvienaya Vaina. Oh, man. So, yeah, go ahead and try and say that every time you want to talk about the war. No, thanks. I mean, even in English, we just have to say World War II, but even some of us get lazy and call it WW2 or yeah. WWII. Yeah. What do those words translate to actually in English? Yeah. So, the, the English translation is Great Patriotic War. Yeah. Vilikaya is great. And the, the next word, it's a mouthful. It actually comes from the word atsiechistva, which literally means the fatherland, yeah. the homeland. And so atsiechistvienaya means like the, the war to defend your homeland. Hmm. That's all wrapped up in atsiechistvienaya. And then vaina is war, a feminine gendered word. Yeah. But we kept seeing Bob everywhere when we were out there, didn't we? Yeah. One time I, I was trying to get a room at the, the Komnatyotika in uh, the train station in Moscow, those little relaxation Simple hotel rooms oh, yeah. they had at the train station. The, that place, the place we hung out when I was when I was sick after that <laughs> Moscow yeah. train ride. Yeah, yeah, I love those rooms. <laughs> when you were hungover AF, <laughs> so I uh, I went. I one a time that you were not with me, I reserved a room and everything, and then I went back and the lady. She was just matter of fact. She said, she said, no, your room's it's not there anymore. You don't have a room. Hmm. And I was starting to get upset. I was like, like what? What do you mean? I made a reservation. She said, hey, uh. uh Great patriotic war veteran came. You what? You want me to turn him down? Uh, and I was like, okay, <laughs> no, I can't. I cannot kick this guy out of a room. Yeah, that. So the guys who sense. the guys who did survive the war, yeah, they they are treated like like royalty. Yeah, those guys who managed to to make it through because most people who fought in that war did not survive it. Yeah, I feel like those little old men with their canes that we would see walking down the streets. Like nobody messed with them. If they were if they were on a sidewalk and it was only room for one person, men, women, children, everybody moved off into the street so that way that man could have the sidewalk and not be inconvenienced in any way. Which which makes sense. I mean, there's yeah, a lot there's a lot of respect for that. And I think I think in our country we have a respect for those veterans as well. But um but that that respect was amped up by a hundred in Russia. Totally. Now speaking of of disrespect, yeah. we we didn't quite get it so much, and we were we were little jackass kids when we were there. So, do you remember when we went and visited the war museum? Yeah, with all of the all the old um, like tanks and everything. Yeah, at the, at the park overlooking Saratov. Yeah, we were less than respectful. L much less than respectful. We have some great pictures uh, <laughs> as a result of it, but looking back on it, we were we were little jackasses that. Uh, that probably should have gotten a talking to at least, if not a whooping. But there was a really cool um, outdoor war museum in Saratov, which I think I think a lot of the main cities probably have a similar museum like this, where it was just rows and rows of old tanks and jeeps and missiles. There was even a uh, there was even a, a little exhibit where it had some old like Panzers. And German jeeps that were kind of blown up, and just to show how well that the how the, well the Russians repelled them, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, we had we had a we had a good time at that museum, didn't we? Yeah, it was a fascinating place too. 
and especially to have grown up in the states where you know all the the Soviet military was this distant exotic thing in our minds and then yeah. to be there like face to face with all the this machinery that you had only seen in in a James Bond movie probably yeah we took a we took a few pictures with posing with the tanks like the tank gun was our wang and things like that <laughs> and yeah. uh, and i think i mean we were we were really young kids obviously also we we didn't have an appreciation for for Russia's sacrifice, and we were we were brand new to Russia too. We had yeah. only been living there what a month a month or two, I think. Yeah, we were. We it was the the first summer that we were there. I remember it being really hot. It was you, me, and Murph. We were there with our Russian teacher, Mike. Oh yeah, he was the one who took us there. Yeah, and we just thought it would be funny to sit on the tanks with the the barrels in between our legs and and pose like the bombs were phallic (laughs) (laughs) yeah we pretty much we just made everything our wing pretty much in all the photos yeah we had a lot of middle fingers in those pictures i think there was uh there was a sign there was a uh, i remember one i think there was some missiles or a gun pointed up in the air and painted on it it said in russian death to fascists oh yeah i remember that and i think we stood by it and we had our middle fingers looking up as if we were shooting fascists <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was pretty cool yeah y'all can check some of those out i'll um we'll post them on our on our social media and uh, you can see some of some of our experiences with the um the war museum but it was really cool i Actually, i feel like i feel like if we were able to go back now i would have different experience um just kind of soaking in the gravity of the situation yeah it was well, it was short. I think shortly after we visited that museum was Victory Day. Was May ninth, hmm. and we didn't even we didn't even know what that was. No, and people had to tell us, yeah, this is commemorating you know victory over over the Nazis, yeah, uh, survival of of Russia, and, and uh, so we saw the big parade for Victory Day, and the first thing that sticks in in my memory as giving me just a glimpse of of what all that meant at the time. Uh, there was a poster all over Saratov. I've looked for it online since. I have not been able to find this poster. I really wish I could find this image. Maybe they only used it that year and only in Saratov, for all I know. But it had a photograph on it of a soldier who just come back from the front, hmm. and it's just this close up of his face, and he's uh, he's there with his wife, and I think they're pressed. I can't remember if they're kissing or just pressed cheek to cheek, but both of them are just like scrunching their eyes shut with tears and they're just so deliriously happy to be back together and to be alive. Yeah. And it was just seeing the look on their face in that poster, it's that said it all. And as I got to meet people who had who remembered that or people whose parents had fought in the war and or had died in the war, I would uh, hear these these collective memories of that time and the time after the war. Mm. Uh, there was a guy, um older dude he uh you know not old enough to have fought in the war but old enough to to vividly remember all all the things stories people told and he would talk about the 50s in russia and he would come to my i would do these english discussion groups at the saratov library and this guy would come and he'd talk about the 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 public feeling after the war mm. and he he'd describe it as this nation that was absolutely devastated Starving to death, had nothing. This war had just set us back decades in development, but people were just so deliriously happy to have peace. Yeah. At last. Wow. And to be alive. Wow. And that was all they needed at the time. Mm. Just just peace and survival. Well, you mentioned 
you mentioned to me a while back about, I think, a, uh, a teacher in high school that you had who visited Russia, and he noticed there was a huge gap in the generations, right? Oh, yeah. Even though I'm imagining, even though people had peace, people were so deliriously happy, there was a lot of people missing and, and a, a big gap. Yeah, he, he went uh, to the Soviet Union in the 70s. That was Mr. Karnasek, uh, um, my history teacher. And he told us that he went to the Soviet Union for like two weeks mm-hmm. and he could visibly see it on the streets. So in like 1970s, wow. you're thinking like they would have, the, the veterans, the Volv veterans would have been about middle-aged by then. Yeah. And he could just look around in this whole absence of men that age. It was just visible on the streets. Like there were men older than them and younger than them and then just nothing for this gap of that generation. Wow. I guess that's why they have memorials like in Red Square, the the flame, the eternal flame for the unknown soldier. So many of those people died. Yeah. And like you said, like every town has one. Yeah. Yeah. Like every town in Russia has has a big wall, a uh, memorial of the, the people who died in that war. Hmm. And it's always it's always enormous. It's like like a whole generation of young men from that that time, and all their names are up there. Yeah, I spent a couple of weeks in Siberia after we lived there. You weren't with me, and we did a camp. And there was a one man who came, and he just started hiking over the hills. And we saw him from far off coming, carrying an assault rifle, an old Kalashnikov. Whoa! And he uh, and so he came to the camp, and he wanted to help. And and I guess. In Soviet times, they would have a summer camp for the kids, the pioneers, and they would do drills. They would do training, uh, military training. So one of the things he set up was an obstacle course where we had to run through this obstacle course. We had to take apart the gun and put it back together again. And then we had to run to this dugout dirt pit, and there were there were these three wooden sticks that were meant to be like grenades and we were supposed to take those sticks and throw them and lob them over into another pit. And it was all supposed to signify like being in the trenches and fighting and, and being able to, <laughs> to throw those grenades to, to kill the fascists. And I thought that was interesting. And that, <laughs> oh, wow. that was, you know, that was 2005 probably, but people still had this mentality, still had this idea, this thought of the Great Patriotic War. World War II was still imprinted on people's minds and people's psyche, and that's one of the things that they did. I think you had a you had an experience at a camp playing a game as well that kind of had aspects of that too, right? Yeah, really similar. It was uh, just a year before you were in Siberia. This is You had already gone back to the States, and I, yeah. I was still in, in Russia. And I was working at that English camp that we worked at. I did it many times. And we were, this one was in Moscow or outside of Moscow. And uh, we were in the woods. We were playing kind of a, sort of a capture the flag type game at night. Uh And basically all the counselors, we were the bad guys and the the students were the good guys trying to get past us through the woods. And uh, so my buddy, Kirill, who I had met at that camp, uh, we, we became friends and and him and I, we were shouting in German as the kids as they went through. That was his idea, his <laughs> Kirill's idea, like to make it, to give it this sense of realism, like, like they're the partisani, like the the guerrilla soldiers, the Russian guerrilla soldiers fighting in Nazi-occupied territory. Ah. So the kids would run by, and, and Kirill would shout out, "Achtung, Achtung, einen Partisanen!" <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's it's still imprinted on the 
uh, popular consciousness even that many generations later. Yeah. I remember uh, one night we were hanging out with our friends, our youth leaders at the church. And whenever people would hang out, we, someone would always pull down a guitar and start playing and, and people would end up singing like yeah. old folk songs. In some of our circles, it would be old Christian Baptist worship songs that they loved. But I remember one night, it, it, it didn't go that way. It went more of the folky way. And, and Abramov or someone pulled down the guitar and started playing an old folk song. Do you, do you remember that? I, I think we were at Oksana's house. Yeah, that, uh, yeah I mean, we heard that song multiple times. That one and, and Tiomnaya Noche are two really popular ones. Yeah. And, uh, and this one, it's about a tank operator. Hmm. Um, the title, it's Napoli Tanki Grahatali. And, uh, and that song, you get used to hearing it a lot at parties and when people are pulling out the guitar. And oftentimes pulling out the alcohol. I think she, she pulled out some alcohol, <laughs> which was out of character for her, but. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, actually a bottle of, old, of medical rubbing alcohol. Oh, really? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I realized that, was, that. Yeah, that was all they had at their house. So she, <laughs> uh, she and Natasha and some of the girls, they were like, you know what? We feel like having a little drink. <laughs> with this song we were so inspired oh wow and uh <laughs> yeah, but in russia it's not uh rubbing alcohol in the states it's a different kind that you're, you're not supposed to drink but in russia i think it's i mean it's drinkable enough they're still alive but, wow <laughs> so they're doing shots of rubbing alcohol and playing this song <laughs> let's check out the song for a minute yeah let's listen to it Солдаты шли в последний бой, а молодого командира несли с пробитой головой, а молодого командира несли с пробитой. Tanks rumbled on the field. The soldiers headed into the last battle. But the young commander was carried off with a wounded head. The tank was struck. Goodbye, dear crew. Four corpses laying near the tank complement this early morning scene. The vehicle is enveloped in flames. Ammunition is scarce. But oh, how we want to continue to live, boys. And there isn't enough force to make it through. We will be pulled from the rubble, our carcasses carried by their hands, and they will take us away on our final voyage. And the telegrams will be sent to relatives and loved ones, informing them that their son will never come back again. He will never come visit home again. The elderly mother sits crying in the corner. The old father wipes a tear from his eye. And a young girl doesn't even know what sort of an end that young tank driver reached. Yeah, very, very somber song. It's interesting how people sing it nowadays. Uh, it's very popular, you know, part of the, the folk song mm -hmm. repertoire. People sing when they bring out the vodka or the rubbing alcohol and the guitar. <laughs> it's interesting that they always treat it, that there's respect, of course. It's treated with a lot of respect. But, you know, we're at this point in history, we're far enough removed from the immediate tragedy that, that it is sung with respect, but people will make jokes as well. And uh, 
our, our friend Abramov told me one joke about that last verse you read that you know a lot of the young people will will bring up because the word ganets means end so that last verse is where talking about the the young fiance she's never going to know how her betrothed died on the battlefield so it's talking about the end that his life met but uh that phrase gaku soldata bil ganets ganets is also a slang word for a penis <laughs> and so people make people make a lot of Jokes about how she would never, you know, she'd never get to try that. She never knew what it was like. Oh, man. And uh, It's a tragedy. <laughs> but the young people now, they're removed from that enough to be able to joke about it, even as they they respect the memory of it. Yeah, the those lyrics, you know, talking about a, a woman waiting for her loved, her betrothed, as you said, back home. That's That's a story that pops up over and over and over again in the Russian culture. Yeah, I mean, it, and in a lot of cultures have have these songs about about war and songs about the loved one being off at battle and mm-hmm. will he come back home again. But uh, I think especially in Russia, this country that's been invaded or other countries have tried to invade it so many times. Yeah. Yeah, that's a part of, part of the Russian canon of folk songs since long before the Great Patriotic War. Yeah. That brings us to our film review. The film that we watched had basically had that had that theme. The film is Litsyat Juravli, which means uh, the cranes are flying. A Soviet film, Mosfilm, made it in 1957. It's all about World War II, mm-hmm. but uh, obviously filmed uh, now 12 years after the end of World War II. Really gets into the human side of, of how that affected the psyche of the entire Soviet nation. Yeah. I, I think it's amazing that this movie was even made. Luckily, it was made... After Stalin had kicked the bucket, yeah, I don't think it ever would have gotten made when he was around. Still, there's kind of a um, anti-war sentiment in this film. A little bit of a uh, little, a little bit of a protest type film. It felt like to me. Yeah, yeah, you get that sense. I mean, as much as was allowed in the Soviet Union period uh, to have something like that. Yeah, but it's very. I mean, it's very focused on that immediate human experience of of the horrors of war. Yeah. The director, he's, I didn't realize this, our, our friend Abramov recommended the movie, so we watched it, and then I, I was researching it, and the director's a big deal. Mikhail Kal- Kalatozov, hmm. he's a big deal in, in film history period and in Soviet film, and a lot of people have talked about how much he was able to accomplish with, both with the budget he was given and the technology at the time and with, with the strictures of Soviet censorship. Yeah. Which, you know, 1957, I think uh, Khrushchev was in power then, but, but you know, the censorship never disappeared entirely. Yeah, yeah. So he had to be careful, and he was able to say a lot and show a lot of very human complexity uh, despite those censors breathing down his neck. Yeah. Well, it's it's definitely an art film. I think films from that time period tended to be that a little bit more high, high art, artistic. Uh, some of the shots that he has are just amazing. He, he, he has a lot of really long shots. You, you were mentioning this to me earlier. One of the shots that I really loved, there's a scene of, of the young man running up the stairs in, a, in an apartment building to meet his love. And the, the camera just follows him up the stairs, like in the middle of the stairwell. And it just made me think like, wow, how did they do that? I mean, especially back in the 50s. Yeah. I I have no idea how they got that shot. Yeah. But very artistic. Very artistic. 
Yeah, the cinematography is is incredible. Like the and the use of light and dark, the use yeah. of the framing of the shots. It's uh, and it's something that people study in film school for that reason. It's yeah. incredible cinematography. The the one that impressed me is when, uh, the main character, uh, Veronica, she's when she's running after the bombing of Moscow, and she's running through the rubble. And it's like a continuous shot. She's running through. There's flames. The stuff's on fire. And then at some point, she's going up that stairwell. Yeah. And this flaming flaming timber, this flaming piece of wood comes falling down. And I'm like, this is 1957. That's not CGI. That's not a green screen. <laughs> yeah. This, this actress is like inches away from a flaming piece of wood coming down. Well, let's, let's give a little synopsis for this. And um, before we do that, I just want to say like, hey, this is... This is a, a film we recommend. You can find it on YouTube and you can check it out yourself. There's subtitles built into it there, but check it out. But uh, here's here's a little bit of of where the film goes. It's basically a story of of this woman. Her nickname was Squirrel. <laughs> um, Boris called <laughs> yeah, her Squirrel. Bielka. Boris was her, her boyfriend, her betrothed, her fiance at the beginning of the film. And the beginning of the film is them together enjoying life as young lovers, but the war happens and he volunteers, he goes off and there's not a whole lot of uh, war scenes, which you'd think for a war film that it would be, you know, more focused on the war, but it really is more focused on life back home. Um, it focuses right. a little bit more on her life. Yeah, she is. Veronica is the, the heroine of the film for sure. She's the main character. Yeah. So she uh, she kind of gets in a in a really crappy situation. He left for war. There was some communication that didn't quite connect. And so she she thinks she thinks that he might be over her. And um, his cousin stays back. His cousin, Mark, gets an exemption for being an artist. He's a he's a musician. He's a concert pianist. And so he gets an exemption. But he also is in love with Squirrel. When they're while they're experiencing life in Moscow, Boris is out on the front experiencing the death and destruction that comes from war. He eventually he he ends up dying. He gets shot, but it doesn't it doesn't reach back to to home. Moscow gets attacked, and uh, creepy Mark forces himself on Veronica. So they they kind of end up getting married, um, even though she doesn't want to. She still loves Boris, but. The circumstances make her feel like she needs to be with Mark. Things just go from from bad to worse. Man, this film this for me this film was depressing. <laughs> uh, I oh yeah, this... I, I watched it and was just like, what is going on? What you know? There's nothing good happening, and I think that's I think that was the point of the film is that there is nothing good. Nothing good happens from war. Nothing good comes out of it. It sucks, and and it's bad for yeah every person involved. I found it very sad. But not, um, I, I feel like I need to temper the word depressing only because a lot of people imagine there's this caricature of foreign films that are depressing for the sake of being depressing. Yeah. That are just existential ennui and, oh, life is meaningless. They are, why should I keep on living? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this Jean-Paul Sartre kind of thing. Like it's just all kill ourselves. There's nothing else to live for. But this, it's like, it's people who are trying to keep living in the face of, of destruction and war. Oh, you're right. And they're trying to have a normal life. They're trying to find happiness. They're trying to have that normal life. They keep saying that throughout the film, like, well, let's just, let's just keep on having a normal life or, 
you need to just keep pressing on like normal. Veronica, I think like her whole thing is like, well, what's normal? <laughs> like none of this yeah. is normal. It's not supposed to be normal. You know what I thought when r- right about after that, that scene where Mark forces himself on her, which is a, a horrifying scene, like amazingly shot to, to depict the horror. Yeah. It's uh, like it's got his piano music playing in the background and Moscow's getting bombed and the windows are shattered. Yeah. And he's and she's she's slapping him and she's telling him no and he, he keeps advancing. And but this is more horrific than a lot of stuff I've seen in actual horror movies because it's it's real. It's something that that happens. Yeah. Um, and and happened to her and people like her where she's in this situation and she's making the best with what she has which is a, a terrible situation. And and the the cultural expectations like there's a lot that that goes unsaid in the family after that but but it's a lot of implication that you have to do the honorable thing and marry him. Yeah. Cuz you've dishonored your betrothed Baris who's off on the front and they at this point she doesn't know whether Baris is alive or yet. And for the entire movie she doesn't know. She's still holding out hope that he might be alive. Yeah. But the family pressures her and she they she and Mark say they're going to get married, like do the do the quote unquote honorable thing. Yeah. When which is just such such a shitty thing for for someone like her to ever have to do for a woman who's gone through that. And then to be pressured by culture, or society or family to basically to, to marry her rapist. Yeah. And that's something that happens in the world. And it's, it's horrific. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of some of the information you gave earlier about um, the people who were exploiting other people that, you know, the, the people experienced impossible situations and you, you talked about cannibalism and murder, um, people stealing yeah. ration cards, which was, which was deadly. You know, one person, one person missing one day of food that could be the end of their life um, in the situations that they were in. And this is another one of those situations. This man, Mark, exploits her for what he thinks is love where, where she actually has love for Boris, um, a pure real love. And it just shows, you know, the horror of war, not just on the battlefield, but, um, but the horror that comes up in, in normal people. And yeah. And people opportunistic people like him who take advantage of that situation. And there's a few other instances like that. He, he gets connected to a group of people who, his boss asks him to, to steal medicine from the hospital. Oh, right. And so it shows like there are things happening and, and that, that, that was the path that he chose, but she chose a path of continuing to love and to, to, to step up and to be the better person. And, um, and it kind of ends on a bittersweet note. The war ends, many soldiers are coming home and she's back in Moscow. She's just hoping and searching to see Boris in the the group of soldiers coming back, and she doesn't. She she ends up meeting his friend Stepan, who who basically tells her that Boris did die and, and gives her that confirmation. And she's devastated. She she starts running through the crowd, crying. And then there's a speech. I think it's by Stepan. He must have been an officer or something, right? Yeah. And and he gives yeah. he gives a speech which. I think touches her a little bit and I think is supposed to touch us as listeners. And I think we, we're just going to end this review and, and kind of end our episode here with this speech. Dave, would you share that with us? Yeah, this, I think it's a great way to, to end the episode. 
and thinking about the, the reality of what people went through here. So this is a, a little translation of a part of that speech at the end. He says, We have all waited for this happy moment. We dreamed of it in the darkest hours of our struggle. But we will never forget those who lie silent on the battlefield. Years will pass, our cities will rise again, and our wounds may one day be forgotten. But let one thing remain in our hearts, a cold hatred of war. We deeply feel the grief of those who cannot meet their loved ones today. Let us all take a solemn vow of promise that sweethearts will never again be parted by war, that our brave fathers may not stealthily swallow their tears, that mothers may never again fear for their children. We have won and remained alive not for destruction, but to build a new life. Hmm. You know, World War II, the Great Patriotic War, was such a pivotal point in Russia's history in the last century, in the history of the world. Um, so we're, we're glad to uh, talk a little bit about it and share some of our thoughts, share some of our experiences. But, you know, this is a two-way street, and, and we'd love to hear from you, too. If you have experiences, whether it's Russian experiences with the war, or, you know, if you have people in your own family who served in that war or any other wars, um, feel free to share them with us. You can, you can link with us in all our social media, hit us up on Instagram at TRWL underscore podcasts or Twitter and Facebook TRWL podcast. Um, we'll be sharing some of those photos that we've got, but uh, we just want to say thanks to those um, people throughout history who have given their lives to stop evil. Today's episode is dedicated to the millions of men and women around the world who gave their lives to fight fascism, to the countless families who lost loved ones to the carnage of war, but, most importantly, to those brave souls who dare to dream and work and fight for a world without war, to those who truly believe in the idea of mirumir, peace to the world, we salute you. <laughs>